so the country, the government largely gives up on the, the idea of trying to save the civilian population. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined by journalist Garrett Graff. He's the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die, which was released last month. Also joining us here in Washington is Elias Gurl, a staff writer for FP covering cyberspace and the FBI and Department of Justice. Also calling in from London is Ryan Gallagher, a UK-based investigative journalist for The Intercept and my former colleague, where he's focused on government surveillance, technology, and civil liberties. ER nerds have questions or comments. You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So I wanted to start off by saying this is a wonderful book that I really enjoyed. And I know a little bit about the history of the government's plan to save itself, but I couldn't help when getting to different parts of the book, sort of so many like, oh, my God moments. They really did that. Um, So just to start off with, what what motivated you to look into sort of this obscure but very important area of continuity of government operations? And and what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, continuity of government is the blanket term for a whole umbrella of different policies having to do with how the government would respond both during uh, an attack on the United States or a catastrophic event and then also begin to rebuild and restart the country and the government afterwards. And the programs have existed since the Truman and Eisenhower administration effectively beginning at the start of the nuclear age when the possibility of the country or of a city disappearing in a split second uh, first arrived. And so they grew ever more elaborate over the course of the Cold War. Um, And at the beginning, it it was very much just focused on evacuating the president from Washington. And then it became this much larger and uh, more complex series of plans and procedures both for evacuating officials uh, and then this whole uh, very strange constellation of bunkers and airborne command posts and evacuation helicopters and armored command trains and presidential floating White Houses, uh, Navy, special Navy ships off the Atlantic coast. And then the, the name of the book itself, Raven Rock, is the main Pentagon bunker uh, in West in, in Pennsylvania, just uh, over the Maryland line from Camp David, that is uh, this hollowed out city within a hill um, under Raven Rock Mountain. Well, uh, let's start from the very beginning. Yeah. What was the first plan to evacuate the president at the beginning of the nuclear age? Uh, so the first plan, uh, so this is the story at, at a very basic level of a unfolding technology revolution. And it's about the changing war technology, the rise and the speed of nuclear delivery systems, uh, and then also the communication systems that sort of power that and drive our national command authority, what, what's known as the nuclear launch uh, authority. And so, you know, remember at the start of the atomic age, we we're looking at bombers and that was the, the main threat. And we were looking at atomic weapons and those were comparatively pretty weak compared to what we now have with thermonuclear weapons on ICBMs. And so the first plan was basically to put President Truman on the USS Williamsburg, the presidential yacht, and have him sail down the Potomac into the Chesapeake Bay and out into the Atlantic. And And, and then what? (laughs) 
Well, and and then what is a is a very good question. Um, and part of part of that era was also the idea that atomic war would actually probably be a pretty limited event. You know, there weren't that many bombers, there weren't that many atomic bombs, and so you know you might really only have a handful of major cities that were destroyed uh, by these comparatively pretty small atomic bombs. But then over time, of course, as the technology got stronger, as that decision time was compressed from bombers to missiles and reduced from 8 to 10 hours of warning to 15 to 30 minutes of warning uh, or even less, then you could end up with these sort of much more uh, wacky-seeming plans of these presidents plucked from the White House lawn by helicopter uh, dropped off at an, uh, a 747 that would serve as the airborne command post, and the president, uh, you know, would take off for three days flying above the United States uh, in these uh, doomsday planes before they eventually uh, landed somewhere uh, to see what the rubble was that was left. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So, of course, as the book describes, there's this moment where you go from when the president might have hours because Soviet bombers are inbound to, you know, Night, late 1950s, 1958, you have the launch of Sputnik, you have the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles, and suddenly you have, what, about 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, t- how does that transform, um, and how quickly does it transform the thinking? It, it transforms it pretty quickly uh, it, in one very key area, which is certainly by the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, the government has largely given up on the idea that the civilian population in the United States could be saved. Um, During that early era in the 50s and early 60s, there really was the hope that most major cities could be at least partially evacuated, you know, that most government officials would have time to evacuate out of Washington uh, and other major cities into these mountain bunkers and these relocation facilities. Uh, The State Department set up their relocation facility in Front Royal, Virginia on this beautiful bucolic cattle farm where the State Department was going to relocate. And, And then, of course, Missiles make all of that pretty obsolete. Um, I mean, uh, up until then, the plan was really Congress would be evacuated by train. You know, they would all walk down to Union Station and then be whisked to their bunker in the Greenbrier in West Virginia by this special train. Um, But, of course, missiles make trains not the best way to escape nuclear war. So the country, the government largely gives up on the the idea of trying to save the civilian population. They just say we don't – yeah, the civilians are on their own. The the civilians are on their own. And then even most government officials by that point would be on their own. And that you end up with this very small cadre of high-level government officials who will be plucked by helicopter from wherever they are. Uh, with these designated landing zones all over Washington and then be be whisked to these mountain bunkers or these airborne command posts. And you have these great descriptions of the book of sort of who's saved and who's not, that, you know, some government people get that sort of special ticket to get on the helicopter or plane and others don't. Are those decisions, were they sort of made rationally? Uh, so they were made rationally to a certain extent. Uh, but in the very first time the government practiced its evacuation plans in 1954, a very obvious flaw in the plan uh, was made quite evident but it continued until the present day, which is that spouses and families are not included in these plans. 
And so in a very, you know, the, the government tried to make it seem like this was not the elite being saved. And so they didn't make any arrangements for spouses or family members. But what that ended up meaning was uh, a lot of people, when they learned that they were on the list to be saved, uh, said effectively, like, no thanks. Like, I'm I'm not going to leave my wife or my family or my children, you know, in that moment and, like, let them be roasted while I hide off in a bunker. And so you had, uh, for instance, Chief Justice Earl Warren uh, when he was first handed his evacuation pass, he said, well, I don't see one here for Mrs. Warren. And they said, no, sir, like you are one of the most important people in the U.S. government. Like you, you're on the list to be saved. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Like if there's no pass for Mrs. Warren, you'll have room in the bunker for one other person. Wow. But but this this holds true throughout all of these plans, even up to the present day. And these lists were very carefully kept secret for most of the Cold War um, and and even to a certain extent up to the present day. Uh, and so you would have people working in adjacent offices not realizing who was, who was going to be saved and who wasn't. Um, I tell the story in the book that when Aaron Sorkin was doing the research for what ultimately became the West Wing and uh, the American president – this was the 1990s, and he met with George Stephanopoulos when uh, Stephanopoulos was at the White House. And Stephanopoulos pulls out of his wallet this thing that Sorkin thinks is a bus pass, but turns out to be his evacuation pass. And Sorkin writes this into one of the episodes of West Wing, which I'm sure listeners to this podcast will remember uh, when Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff, gets that uh, evacuation pass from the National Security Council and sort of spends this day riddled with guilt uh, that he he will be saved and his colleagues won't. Well, when they're shooting that episode, Dee Dee Myers, who had been White House press secretary with Stephanopoulos, uh, when she uh, she was on set uh, working on the show, pulls Sorkin aside and says, you know, this is pretty unrealistic. These passes don't exist. And Sorkin realizes that Dee Dee Myers, who had worked alongside George Stephanopoulos in the White House, never realized that George would have been saved and she wouldn't have been. Ah, yes. Little small pleasures of life that you might survive nuclear Armageddon. So take us back now to the early 1960s. So you talk about, I mean, as as the name of the book, Raven Rock, um, you talk about, you know, the presidential bunker, like what your favorite facility, what did these actually look like inside? What would it have been like to be inside there after the um, nuclear war started? So there were two main styles of these bunkers. the three biggest ones, uh, Raven Rock, which is where the Pentagon would have relocated, Mount Weather, which is a facility in the Catoctin Mountains in Virginia, which is where the president and the cabinet and the executive branch, the civilian side of the executive branch would have gone. And then NORAD, uh, which is the air defense Uh, command center in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which uh, listeners uh, might remember from the movie War Games, the the Matthew Broderick movie in 1983. So those bunkers are really cities uh, within a mountain. I mean, they're hollowed out mountains with freestanding buildings inside of them. I mean, room for thousands of people, uh, you know, dozens of individual freestanding buildings, uh, you know, they have their own fire departments. They have their own police departments. They have 
uh, medical facilities, dining facilities. Um, you know, NORAD uh, has the world's best protected uh, subway sandwich restaurant uh, deep inside uh, the NORAD mountain. Some things will survive nuclear war. Yes, the $5 footlongs will be there yeah. even after Armageddon. Uh, and then the much larger set of these bunkers uh, are basically buried department stores, um, sort of 100,000 square foot facilities that are just holes dug in the ground and then covered with uh, you know layers and layers of dirt and concrete. And that's where sort of individual departments would have set up their – uh, relocation facilities, and then also where the government set up a lot of communications bunkers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, FEMA built uh, – so FEMA is the agency that has run these programs basically from the start, although FEMA was called by like 12 different names uh, before it became FEMA during the Carter administration. And FEMA had built this whole system – of these eight regional bunkers around the country in places like Denton, Texas and Maynard, Massachusetts, that where they had these department store sized bunkers that would have housed the regional governments that the U.S. would have relied upon in the wake of a nuclear attack. Oh, how wonderful. Federal, yeah, <laughs> before the federal government was able to sort of reestablish national control. One of the things I found interesting in the book, and I want to take it to Ryan for a second, is also it was the private sector that was beginning to get involved, um, communications facilities like AT&T. Now, Ryan, you recently wrote about Titan Point, the uh, mysterious skyscraper in Manhattan, which also had its origins in sort of nuclear war survivability. Am I, I'm remembering this correctly, yes, in the 1960s. Yeah, um, the, the, it's 33 Thomas Street in Manhattan, and it was built and uh, it was 1969 they started building it. It wasn't completed until the early 70s. And, um, I mean, yeah, it was constructed originally to be uh, a heavily fortified um, atomic blast resistant um, facility that, that was housing communications infrastructure, particularly long-distance phone calls were being transited through there and actually still are today. And this this building, if, if you've not seen it, it's it's an incredible-looking structure. It's it's about 550 feet tall, and it is, um, there's, there's not a single window in the building. Um, and it's always been seen as that people have described it as one of the weirdest and most iconic buildings in, in New York, just for because it's, it stands out so much how strange it is. And... Um, so it was built to be to be nuclear resistant, but it, it's still active today. It's owned by AT and T, and our our story that we reported uh, for the Intercept was about um, how the National Security Agency actually has maintained a a secret room within this this big building that has um, surveillance equipment in it that they're using to tap into to phone calls and internet data and things like that. But yes, its history does go back to the Cold War. Do you think that the National Security Agency, was, was it just a convenient place for them to locate out of or did the nuclear survivability aspect, do you think that attracted them as well? Or is that hard to say based on what we know? Uh, well, I think that the building itself was was fortified that way because because it housed the this really really important communications um, equipment that is you know it was actually viewed as one of the the most important in the United States for because of its purposes as um, routing long distance phone calls between the United States and other countries. Um, so I, I think that that is actually going to be the primary reason the NSA has got been sniffing around in there and has ended up 
having its own little secret facility because it is interested particularly in um, you know, communications that are international. So people who are in maybe New York, perhaps working for the United Nations or something like that, who's on a phone call to someone overseas and they want to be in on listening and eavesdropping on those type of phone calls. So that that's probably primarily the reason, but also it it's useful to them that this is a extremely strong building because if there's any kind of attack or whatever, it's unlikely that their their important surveillance equipment is going to be damaged. So, Ryan, a question for you. As part of this continuity of government network around the country, they, there were dozens of what were known as presidential emergency facilities uh, where the president could be evacuated. Uh, one of the things that I was never I didn't dig too deeply into trying to confirm it, but that I, I had heard but never confirmed for the book was that Titan Point actually has a presidential bunker uh, or could have been used as a presidential bunker uh, underground there. Is that something that you had come across in your reporting or do you have any reason to believe that that is true or not true? Well, we did hear and we talked to people who'd worked there past and present and we, we do know there is like a basement facility in there. I mean, it's fascinating. They had like, uh, they've all kind, they had like a full kitchen in there and it mm-hmm. had it had generators to, and enough food to survive two, two weeks, to feed two, to, to feed 1,500 people two weeks in the event of some sort of catastrophe. Um, but the, the presidential thing, we did hear from people that if on 9-11, for example, the president had been in New York City and Manhattan, um, sort of in the vicinity of this building, that he would possibly have been taken there. Um, there are, there is one or two other buildings also in New York City that we were told that, that, that there are all similarly sort of strong fortified buildings that the president may go. I, we weren't able to confirm the whether it was like some sort of official you know, designated place. But but we did keep consistently hearing that from people who'd worked there both past and present. Mm-hmm. This is great. Well, Elias, so <laughs> as someone who told me how they have a recurring nightmare of nuclear war. I do. Does I this do. make you feel better? It doesn't make me feel any better. I mean, the president has a place to go. And I feel really left out. I was really struck by that Eisenhower quote in the beginning of the book where he says the United States doesn't have enough bulldozers to uh, scrape the dead bodies off the streets of the United States in the event of uh, in the event of nuclear war. So I, I, I didn't feel any better having read this book. I felt like I'd been really left out in the cold. Yeah, it, it, you, you, you raise, I think, one of the interesting threads that I – that I was surprised by over the course of the book, uh, which is the extent to which that this doomsday planning and the exercises associated with it uh, changed the way that presidents and top leaders thought about nuclear war. Um, and as you know, I think a lot of people don't realize just how extensive these preparations were and how extensively presidents trained on them during the Cold War. I mean that actually presidents when they're inaugurated basically spend the morning of January 20th before they're sworn in going through nuclear war briefings so that at 12.01 when they become president, they're instantly ready to launch and respond to a nuclear attack if if necessary. And so you have, as uh, as Elias, you, you mentioned, like all of these scenes where presidents sort of walk through just how awful nuclear war would be and they you know would sit through these war exercises they actually would 
fly on these doomsday planes and go through nuclear launch exercises. And you see them really grapple with how awful nuclear war would be. And I think that that actually changes the way that presidents responded to key moments in the Cold War by de-escalating rather than escalating because of having to really sit there and grapple with how awful these things would be. I mean, so much about nuclear weapons is a problem of imagination. And when Truman was first informed about the weapon, he couldn't he couldn't really understand what it right. was, and he did he couldn't comprehend the destructiveness of it. And uh, you know, the, the military had an incredible ability at that point to use these weapons without presidential control at the yes. dawn of the atomic age. Uh, and when Truman. F- started getting these casualty reports, once he understood the scale of the devastation, his thinking about it totally changed. And it's really fascinating to see that kind of evolution as to how leaders are thinking about nuclear weapons once they finally begin to wrap their heads around the total destructiveness of the thing, which is difficult to do at all. Yep. And I keep doing that in my recurring nightmare yeah. <laughs> when and nuclear I, bombs explode over Washington. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was really poignant to me in researching this was – so during those exercises, the president participates but doesn't actually do anything. Like they just sort of sit there as an observer because you, the thinking is always you'd never want a president to tip his hand as to how he would actually respond to a crisis. So you would have someone else sitting in the president's chair in all of these exercises, making the decisions as if they are president. And in all of these exercises, the thing that the planners came to understand was that the person who was playing the president, even though they knew that they were just playing the president and they knew it was an exercise and they knew that it was a simulation, wouldn't ever actually give the launch order. That they would sit there and basically watch the country be destroyed and still be unable to you know, metaphorically pull the trigger on a retaliatory strike, uh, e- even though they knew that their words were meaningless. That was just too much of a... Uh, of a you know sort of leap for the human mind to make to think you know the these are the words that I would say to destroy the world. But that's what is striking about the book is you get the sense that you know presidents are thinking about this. I mean, it's an important issue. They're taking it very seriously, but they're protecting institutions. Um, and not the civilian population. It was very striking for me is if you think about the system you're protecting is democracy. There's very little essence of that and the systems. I mean, you have this great description of Eisenhower, who's appointing sort of industrial chiefs, company presidents that are going to run different agencies after the war. Now, that's dismantled under Kennedy, but it's still very striking. Like, you know, president of General Electric will run this and my friend will run that. Um, How, you know, do they think about that? Not just how do you preserve the institutions, but how do we ensure that the democratic institutions are preserved? Yeah. And and I think that's a fascinating theme in this also is that pretty quickly when you begin to talk about preserving the U.S. government, it ends up being this very existential question about what is America? You know, are you trying to preserve the presidency? Are you trying to preserve the three branches of government? Uh, and, And even, you know, are you trying to preserve the historical totems that have bound us together generation by generation? I mean, yeah, like the Declaration about, of Independence is more important than the Constitution. Yeah, Can you talk about that? Yeah. That was and fascinating, so, the prioritization. So, you know, what, what, so what was that, that yeah. they prioritized which historical documents? It, so uh, 
would be safe. Yeah, I mean, the National Archives and the Library of Congress, you know, sat down and, you know, rank ordered their holdings and said, you know, if we only have time to grab one document, like it's going to be the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution. Uh, and, well, the Second Amendment people, they're going to be uh, right. <laughs> uh, And then, uh, you know, the Library of Congress went through this exercise and, you know, they were going to save the Gettysburg Address before they saved George Washington's military commission. Um, and probably my favorite detail, my favorite single detail in the entire book is that through the Cold War, there was a special team of park rangers in Philadelphia whose job it was to evacuate the Liberty Bell in the event I, of a Soviet nuclear that attack. That was amazing. And I just sort of have this mental image of these like friendly park rangers like driving off in a pickup truck into the mountains Save of the Appalachia with the Liberty Bell like swinging in the back of their pickup truck. Um, it's also the secrecy that pervades. I mean, it's sort of in plain sight, but also heavily secret. And you do address um, some European plans and NATO plans. But Ryan, I'm curious, is there has there been much discussion about this publicly, about what the UK government's continuity of operation plans are, what they would do in case of a massive nuclear strike? Um, no, <laughs> uh, the the UK government is 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 a lot even more secretive than the US government, and um, so particularly on these kind of matters, they they really try to limit all all discussion of it. But we do know, of course, from historical records, um, similar to what we've been discussing in regards to the Cold War, that they they also had here uh, many nuclear bunkers and things um, through that period. Um, some of them now actually are open to the public, and there's mm-hmm. there's like there's a couple in um, in Scotland, for example, that uh, that are now sort of tourist sites. One of them, this guy was trying to get permission to turn one into like a kind of um, hotel, bizarrely like a hotel that people could like go and sleep in there and stuff. Um, so so we do know from history that they they obviously they did have all these contingencies in place, but the current um, situation, um, the current sort of model that they have in place if there were ever some kind of um, catastrophe like that, uh, that is all, you know, they keep their cards close to their chests on that. The One of the British details that I think is is really fascinating is Britain is small enough that they, they really wrestled with the possibility that the entire country would be destroyed. I mean, there was sort of always the expectation in the United States that the country was large enough that and we had enough redundancies and enough government officials spread into enough places that there would be sort of someone left in command of our nuclear command system. And But Britain didn't necessarily believe that. And so British prime ministers uh, through the Cold War up to the present day write uh, these letters known as – it's one of the first things they do when they take office is write what, what are known as the letters of last resort. And they are handwritten letters from the prime minister that go into safes on board the the UK's nuclear submarines and give the order, uh, the prime minister's instructions for what happens if the UK is entirely destroyed. And should the, the submarine commander launch his missiles? Uh, should he turn his submarine over to a NATO country or sail to Australia or sail to the United States? Um, or should he do nothing? And these letters, no one ever sees them. 
and they're destroyed at the moment that a new prime minister takes office. And so we have no record of what these letters ever said. And we have no sense of what Theresa May's letters say in these safes today. That's amazing. Um, In terms of the Cold War, how much was the Reagan era a critical turning point for continuity of government operations? So the Reagan era and the Carter era were a big turning point. I mean, a part of what I think is lost in the way that we think about the Cold War and uh, certainly remember the Carter presidency is just how hawkish Jimmy Carter was during his presidency, that he he actually started many of the programs that we now uh, can associate with the the Reagan military buildup of the 1980s. And he and Reagan made a huge push to build up uh, our continuity planning, build up our doomsday planning, to invest in new technologies, new vehicles, new communications, new facilities, and that that again, was sort of a real turning point. I mean, those that year of 1982 and 1983 uh, during the early Reagan years was actually a very, very dark period of the Cold War. I mean, it it's arguably the darkest period of the Cold War outside. We all of, thought we were going to die. <laughs> yeah, outside of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we sort of forget about that today. But that was, uh, that was a real turning point for the push for what ultimately became peace later in that decade. Well, you know, the question I really want to ask you is how will Donald Trump survive Armageddon? But let's save that for the next episode. Thank you for turning in to the ER and join us next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.